Amen. Well, I invite you guys to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning. We're going to look together at the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10, verses 36 to 38. Acts chapter 10, verses 36 to 38. This is the holy word of God for us, his people, this morning. And God's word says, As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. This is the holy word of God for us this morning. Let's pray that God blesses our time in his word. May the unfolding of your word give us light, O God that we may be instructed in your wisdom. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Empower the preaching of your word, that we, may, that we might receive it with faith and with eagerness to obey. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week... We finished up our Easter series on the resurrected life, or the resurrection life. Last week was the end of the Easter season. And the way you can tell is the changing of the colors up here. So all through Easter, they were white. And then last week, it changed to red for Pentecost, and now it's switched back to white for Trinity Sunday, and after this it's going to be green for a few months. Okay, so one way you can tell where we are is to look at the colors and then check the church calendar to see where we are. So in the 40-day period leading up to Easter, that's Lent, the colors were purple. Easter itself, Easter Day was white, and then all the way through the 40 days after Easter Day, that's white, and then red for Pentecost, white again for Trinity, today, and then the next season's called Ordinary Time. Ordinary in the sense of the ordinal numbers, the counting numbers, one, two, three, four, five. So it's Ordinary Time, meaning it's counting season. You're counting down the days of the current church age as we are growing. It's growing season. It's green, springtime, summertime, things are growing, and we're counting down the days to Advent, which is all about the second coming. So that's where we are in the church calendar. It's where we are as the church in history. We're about to enter into that growing season on the calendar, which we're currently in, waiting for the second coming, which we celebrate at Advent. And we just roll through that cycle year after year after year. The scripture readings that we do in church follow the seasons because the seasons are like a liturgical or a worship roadmap to the storyline of the whole Bible. By following this 
liturgical roadmap, it helps us be more biblical in our worship because it helps us focus on the storyline of Scripture. Now, this week we come to Trinity Sunday. And the reason Trinity comes at, the, at this particular place on the calendar, the reason Trinity comes here at the end of this storyline of Easter and Pentecost, at the end of this storyline of the coming of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit, is because this historical storyline is the vehicle that God used to reveal this doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity is not an abstract philosophical concept that's just out there in some metaphysical platonic heaven that somehow floated down fully formed from a timeless eternity. It's not this thing that never touches history or the lived experience of the real people in the Bible. The Trinity is a doctrine with a history. The Trinity is a doctrine that comes from a biblical story. And it finds its ultimate meaning in that story. The Trinity emerges gradually, progressively, organically from the interaction and communion of God with his people across time in real history. The Trinity comes out of the interaction between God and his people. And in that interaction, we see three characters, three main characters in the story. Three figures emerge. Father, Spirit, Jesus. So this is the vantage point from which we're going to look at the Trinity today. Now, in theology... Scholars like to talk about two trinities. Now, they don't mean two gods, but they do mean the trinity viewed from two very different vantage points. So there's one trinity, but you can look at the trinity from the side of the biblical storyline, the narrative of history, as this this thing that happens as God interacts with his people. You can look at it from that vantage point. Or you can try your best, good luck, to step outside of time, outside of creation, outside of the world, pretend there's no creation, there's no world, there's no such thing as anything but God, forever and ever and ever. God would still be a trinity, what would he, what, but what is that like? The inner life of God, apart from anything he said or done or revealed. What's God like there? That's called the ontological trinity. This is not going to be a quiz, so you don't have to remember that. But it's called the ontological trinity, and ontology is about being. So what is the trinity like in the hidden, inner, private, eternal life of God? I don't know either. <laughs> the Nicene Creed's about as good as you can do, I suppose. That's why we read it. The other trinity is much simpler to understand. It's the historical trinity. In other words, it's, it's the way Father, Son, and Spirit, or Father, Spirit, Jesus, it's the way that these three characters emerge onto the scene in an unfolding drama, an unfolding story. 
the ontological trinity, we have virtually no access to. There's snatches of insight here and there in the Bible. And how you put that together, you're on your own. But the historical trinity is the one that's sitting there on the surface of Scripture. And I don't mean it's shallow, like surface level. I mean it's the one that you actually read in the rich inner texture of the biblical story as it unfolds. It's the unfolding trinity. The historical trinity is the unfolding trinity, the one that we find in the biblical storyline, the one that has these three characters, Father, Spirit, and Jesus. So the historical trinity is what we're going to focus on today. And the climax of the storyline where the trinity is revealed is the gospel story. Which is why Trinity Sunday is where it is on the church calendar. Advent and the season after that, leading up to Lent, is the first part of the life of Jesus. Lent is the next part of the life of Jesus where he goes to the cross and it culminates with his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, Pentecost. Trinity comes to the end of that storyline because it's only after we discover Jesus in the Spirit, the coming of Jesus in the Spirit, that the Trinity begins to make sense. The Trinity comes into view. And so, guys, the reason we follow a church calendar, the reason we have the colors and we do the readings and stuff, one reason is it helps us be more biblically focused and oriented in our worship. But another reason is it teaches theology. It teaches us the faith, the way we worship. The structure of our worship across the year is actually meant to teach us theology. So it's worth paying attention to, and it's worth following along. So, if the gospel is the climax of the biblical story where the Trinity comes into focus in the Bible, then that's where we have to begin today. That's our starting point this morning. The gospel story, which tells us the Trinity story. In our passage, in Acts chapter 10, Peter is talking to a Roman soldier. At the beginning of chapter 10, this soldier named Cornelius has a vision. And in the vision, he sees an angel. And the angel tells him that you are to go find this dude named Peter. He's not told anything about him. Go find this man, Peter. The angel in the vision tells him where he is. And he says, send somebody, go get him, And tell him he has to come talk to you right away, and he's going to tell you the message of your salvation. Okay, this is not a Jewish man, but this is a man who is very sympathetic to the Jewish people. He actually helps build a synagogue, or he gives some money to Jewish causes. So he's a Jewish sympathizer. He's what the Bible calls a God-fearer. He's not Jewish, but he fears the God of Israel. Now, he probably fears a lot of other gods too. He's Roman. But one of the gods he reveres or worships or honors in some way is the Jewish God, the God of Israel. So he's what's called a God-fearer. And the vision tells him, you are your alms that you've given to the Jewish people. God has seen those. They have those, those things you've done are a memorial before God. And he's decided that he's going to tell you how to hear the gospel. So instead of Peter going and finding this guy and then witnessing to him, this angel in this vision says, Cornelius, go find the person who's going to come evangelize you. Which is, <laughs> it'd be a lot nicer if that's how all our evangelism was. Like the lost just were told to come find us. Wouldn't that be nice? Now we've got to go find them. God knows what he's doing. But in this case, 
This is what's happening. And Cornelius sends, sends some people. It takes three. Peter has to have three visions before he agrees to go. But finally, Peter agrees and he goes. And in the passage, Peter gives a full, concise summary of the gospel. A full but short, concise gospel presentation. And in the passage, Peter calls this the gospel of peace. You see this in verse 36. As for the word that he, speaking of God, as for the word that God sent to Israel, preaching what? Good news, which is gospel, preaching the gospel of peace or good news of peace. This idea of the gospel of peace or the good news of peace connects back to the beginning of the gospel story. As Luke tells it in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 10, Luke says, These are angels saying to the shepherds out in the field. This is a famous Christmas verse. We all know it. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And then in verse 14 of Luke chapter 2, the multitude of heavenly hosts appear in the sky, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This gospel of peace is the gospel of the coming of the Messiah, Christ the Lord. And he brings good news of peace and great joy that will be for all people. This is the message of peace, the gospel of peace. And what kind of peace is it? What kind of peace does Jesus' gospel bring? Well, it says in verse 36, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. This is the peace that Jesus gives, the peace we find from Jesus. And this connects exactly with what Paul says in Romans 5.1, where he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This Jesus brings the message of our salvation. He's the one who brings and gives peace with God. Peace between those who were formerly enemies but now have been reconciled. This is a message of the reconciliation, justification by faith, forgiveness of sins, salvation. This is the whole package that Peter's about to give us, the gospel of peace through Jesus. That's how he sets it up. That's what we're about to see, the gospel of peace with God through Jesus Christ, the bringer of peace. So let's take this and let's put our passage in its larger context of verses 34 through 43 and just see how Peter sums up this whole thing. Verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So this is Peter. He's finally realized that, okay, Jews and Gentiles are both included in the gospel. It's not just for the Jewish people. It's also for the non-Jews. It's also for Gentiles. God doesn't just favor Jews. He favors Gentiles Two, but not just all of them in general, and not just all Jews in general, but in every nation, including the nation of Israel, God favors the one who fears him and does what is right. That's who God's looking for. So this is, 
This is where the gospel starts. Jew and Gentile are included in this gospel of peace. Verse 36, as for the word that he sent to Israel, sent to the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. And then he says, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened through all, throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. This is exactly how the gospel of Mark starts. It starts the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here comes John the Baptist. Prophecy from Isaiah, and then comes John the Baptist. This is how the gospel of Mark. You want an outline of the gospel of Mark? What Peter's about to say is the outline of the gospel of Mark. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Verse 39, And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Now don't miss this. He does not say cross. That is what they hung him on. He was nailed to a cross. But he says tree to make a theological point, one that Paul makes in Galatians 3, where Paul says it, that Christ saved us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, being nailed to the cross. Because it's written in Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that word tree is hearkening back to this statement in the Old Testament where the one who is nailed to a tree or hung upon a tree, they're put there as a sign that they're under God's curse and judgment. And Peter emphasizes here that he was nailed to that tree to signal what Paul says explicitly in Galatians 3, that he's taking the curse, the curse that belongs upon us, the curse of the law of God that we violated at every turn. Jesus took it, he was nailed to a tree instead of us. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Verse 40, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. We just said we believe that he's the judge of the living and the dead in the Nicene Creed. This is where that language comes from. Verse 43, to him, to, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is Peter's summary of the gospel. Jew and Gentile are included. God sent Jesus to proclaim this message, starting in Galilee after the baptism of John and throughout all Judea and Jerusalem. God anointed Jesus with the Spirit, sent him to do kingdom work, healing people, uh, uh, freeing people from the devil's oppression. The Jewish authorities put him to death on a tree, Hint, God put the curse of our sin on Jesus instead of on us, but God raised him from the dead, exalted him to heaven, appointed him to judge the living and the dead, and now we are his witnesses, and we go out and preach the same message that if you believe in his name, you get forgiveness, and you get the peace, and God gets the glory. Hallelujah. That's the gospel. That is the whole biblical storyline of the gospels surrounded around on the life 
of Jesus. This is the gospel, and this is the biblical storyline in which the gospel takes place. And as a result, as a result of this gospel, hearing it and believing it and receiving it by faith, we see in the next section of the text, the Spirit is poured out on Peter's hearers. This is verse 44. While Peter, while Peter was still saying these things, while he's mid-sermon, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And in verse 47, the people who are with, the, Peter says to the people who, that are with him, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. When did Peter receive the Holy Spirit? Acts 2, Pentecost. He says these people have just had a Pentecost moment. Cornelius just had Pentecost happen to him like it did to us. So you see, you've got the coming of Christ, the life of Christ, death, burial, resurrection of Christ, his ascension, where he's Lord of all, and then you have Pentecost, the pouring out of the Spirit. This is the storyline of the Bible. This is the liturgical season we've just come through. The calendar follows this story, this gospel storyline, exactly. And so this is where we are. When we come out of this storyline, when we see this storyline, we see the Trinity. This gospel is the story of three central characters, Father, Spirit, and Jesus. So now let's zoom in. Let's zoom in on our main passage, verses 36 to 38, and let's notice the relationships and the dynamics between these three characters. How are they arranged? How are they related? What do they do? What does the text say about them? The basic arrangement between them is this. God anointed Jesus with the Spirit. That's the basic Framework. That's the basic relationship between. That's how they're related to each other. God anointed Jesus with the Spirit. Now, again, I gave you a couple terms earlier, theological terms. Ontological trinity. That is, what's God life in, what is God like in his hidden inner life apart from creation? The other is historical trinity. What is, what is God like in the biblical storyline and the history that's in the Bible? Well, there's one more I want to mention, and it's called the economic trinity. Now, this is not about how God makes money. Okay? We think of economy as money and prices and finances and business and buying and selling and shopping and trade and tariffs and all that stuff. But that's just a word. Economy is just a word. It comes from Greek. And it means arrangement. And we apply it to finance and stuff like that when we talk about what sort of institutions do we have as a country in terms of goods and services, means of production, and prices and consumption, like buying stuff. What sort of what arrangement do you have for the way your means of production and goods and services, how are they managed, how, do they, how does it function? And you can have what kind of economy do you have for your money and your goods and services. So you could have communism, capitalism, and there's a whole bunch of them. Here, we're not talking about the arrangement of your sort of financial institutions and your means of production institutions. Here, economy of the Trinity means how are these three persons arranged in this storyline? 
when the three persons that we call the Trinity sort of begin to work in history, how do they array themselves towards creation? What stance do they take towards us and towards one another? How are they arranged? What roles do they play and what do they do? How do they accomplish creation, salvation, etc.? That's the idea of an economic trinity. How are they arranged? How do they relate to each other? How do they go about doing the work in the biblical storyline? That's what we're asking. And here's the way the arrangement works. Here's how they relate to each other. First, we see this, that in our text, verses 36 to 38, the Father is identified as God. In the passage, the one that the passage calls God is the Father. You see this in verse 38. God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit. Okay? So if you're asking the question in this passage, who is God? The answer is the Father. And notice that in this verse, verse 38, that God and Jesus are two different people in the, in the story. They're two different characters. Okay? God is not Jesus, and Jesus is not God in this verse. God is specifically the Father. And Jesus is this other person that the Father does stuff to, like anoints. Okay, so that's the way the verse is structured. The one in the passage that's God is the Father. And in fact, as you read the New Testament, with maybe five or six exceptions, almost every single time the word God is mentioned, when it's not referring to some lesser deity or some, like some false god, when it's referring to you know, God, God, capital G, God, I mean, hundreds if not thousands of times, it just means the Father. Five or six exceptions to that where Jesus is called God or the Spirit's called God. And those are not unimportant. Those are crucially important. But most of the time when a biblical writer is thinking about God, capital G God, he's thinking about the Father. That's who pops in his head is the Father. That's what happens for Peter here. When, when he says God, he means Father. So the Father is God, and this one God has a son and has a spirit. This God has a son and has a spirit. This is why Jesus is called the Son of God. God is one and Jesus is the other. Okay? That's how the verse is structured as far as the Father goes. The Father is identified as, the, as, as God here. And next, Jesus of Nazareth is identified here as God's Son, as a man, as a historical person. And it says God anoints Jesus with the Spirit. And then after the resurrection, it says that God appoints Jesus as Lord and judge of all. So look at verse 42. It says, And God commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that, that, the one, that he is the one who, who was appointed by God, that Jesus is appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. So Jesus here in the passage is the anointed one and the appointed one. The anointed one and the appointed one. In verse 38, it says that he is the one who was anointed by God with the Holy Spirit and with power. And it says he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now, too often we think that Jesus does the miracles that he does because he's God. 
And that, of course, he can do these miracles. He's God, after all. He's the almighty, everlasting, eternal God. And he can just do these things because he's God. But notice what this verse says. This, this verse says that Jesus did the good that he did because he was, not, not because he's God, but because God was with him. Meaning the Father was with him. And the Father gave him the Holy Spirit. You see, in his earthly life, Jesus was as dependent on the Holy Spirit as we are. Jesus lived an authentic, fully human life, and that means he had to trust the Holy Spirit, and he had to be given power to do the things that he did. In other words, he didn't cheat. He didn't, like, pull out the God card every now and then and cheat a little. Now, he could have, but he didn't. He didn't, because then he wouldn't, be, he wouldn't really be the best example for us to follow. If he pulled out the I'm God cheat card, we can't do that. We don't have a cheat card like that. So Jesus didn't use it. Jesus did everything he did. He went about doing good and healing people who were oppressed by the devil because he had the Holy Spirit. He had the Spirit of God. He had the power of God, and he had God with him. And we have to live in the same way. And then he's called the appointed one in verse 42 because God raised him from the dead. And when Jesus came out of the tomb, when he was raised out of the tomb, he didn't stop there. He kept going. And he's at the right hand of the Father. And God has put him there at his right hand as Lord of all things. So this is the anointed one and the appointed one, the one who is Lord of all things. Because God took his son and raised him from the dead and put him at his right hand. Father, Jesus, and now the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who enabled Jesus to do what he did. And he does the same for us. And this connects back to the beginning of, of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1. Where Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the Father gives the Spirit without measure or limitation to Jesus. He has the Holy Spirit and all the divine power. And then Jesus is able at Pentecost to pour that out on his church. And whenever you believe the gospel, he pours it out on you too. So we have the Spirit of the Father and the Spirit of Christ. It's the same Holy Spirit, the one they share in common. God poured it out on him, and through him it's poured out on us as well. The Holy Spirit is like the personal living presence and power of the Father and the Son, binding them together as a single family, Father and Son, with a common spirit. And when you get the Holy Spirit, you're brought into that family as well. You don't get turned into God, but you do get to join in on that relationship, that eternal relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. You get to taste what it's like to be a member of the family, to enjoy life in the Trinity. Your Christian life is a life inside those Trinitarian relationships that you get to enjoy, that make you a child of God, and that make you look like Jesus the more you walk in the Holy Spirit. So let's sum it up like this. From this passage, we can summarize the historical trinity as God has revealed it in this economy, this arrangement of redemption and the gospel storyline. Here's what we see. 
we see a triad of central characters. And in English, a triad is any group of three. Three cities, three apples, three people, it doesn't matter. Any group of three you can call a triad. And initially, that's what the word trinity meant. When, it, when someone came up with it in Greek and came up with it in Latin, it just meant three, like triad does. But then, it, then you put the word the on front of it, and you don't mean any group of three. You mean the three, so that we all know what you mean, the three. The trinity means the three. The three who's, Father, Spirit, and Jesus. One God forever. How how do these three, this trinity, present themselves to us? We see God, God's Son, and God's Spirit. So that God is the founding member of this trinity. God, God's Son, God's Spirit. God is Father, Jesus is divine Lord, and the Spirit is the personal, living presence and power of God and Jesus and us because we get included through this gospel story. This is the biblical, historical shape of the Trinity. Now, how you work out the exact way that these three, this triad, is actually one being in eternity past, apart from creation and apart from biblical history and apart from the gospel, again, the Nicene Creed is about as good as we can do. It's not unimportant, but I would say this, it's not most important either. It's a secondary question. The ontological trinity is secondary to the historical trinity. So what we should do is not spend our time hyper-focused on, well, how is it one being and three persons? and how do We can get very distracted by that very important but abstract and secondary discussion. What's most important is that we recognize that there is one God That one God made everything. That one God has a son. His name is Jesus. He was sent by that one God to rescue and redeem us and save us through his work in his life and in his death and resurrection. And that this one God and this one Jesus share this one Holy Spirit who gave Jesus the power to do what he did in his earthly life. That Jesus has authority over now to send where he wants it to go. And that you can receive by faith right now and receive the forgiveness of sins, receive adoption as God's child, be brought into this relationship. Let's put our attention on the gospel, on that gospel storyline, on this great, climactic, life-changing, eternity-changing story. And let us believe this gospel. Let us believe it, and let us love and live for this Trinity, Father, Spirit, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would indeed give us eyes to see who you truly are and give us eyes to see who your Son, our Lord and Savior, truly is in all of his divine majesty and all of his human majesty, that we see him clearly as the central figure around this gospel of our salvation. And give us eyes to see this Holy Spirit that you have given to Jesus without limit and without measure, and that he in turn offers to us, and that by faith we can have full forgiveness of all of our sins, and we can know life in this Trinity. Father, bring us in 
and give us hearts that love and long for you and your Son and your Holy Spirit and give us lives that glorify you, that live for you. Father, we ask these things with the help of your Holy Spirit and in the name of your majestic Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.